I wrote it down. I wrote it down word for word because it was, it was so cute. Uh, and very insightful, actually. So this was something. This was when uh, my daughter Zoe uh, was about four years old. Yes, I'm going to embarrass you for a little bit, honey. So this is a cute story. So when Zoe was about four years old, this was slightly before Joel was born, we were sitting around the dinner table, and just kind of out of the blue, uh, Zoe decided to uh, describe and delineate the authority structures within our household. Okay, this is from the point of view of a four-year-old. And she started, and I wrote this down exactly, uh, she started by saying, Dad is in charge of the house. I'm also in charge. (laughs) And then she went on and said, Eric is in charge of Luke. Mom is in charge of her clock. And Luke is in charge of bugs. And there was no Joel at the time. So I, I thought it was really cute, and I thought it was kind of strangely insightful, too. I mean, okay, poor Luke, he's at the bottom of the totem pole, so he just gets bugs for, for his, his minions there to be over. Um, that's part of what, you know, mom being in charge of the clock. At first we thought, that, is that just a, kind of a random thing for a little kid to say? Then again, thinking about motherhood and how this works, it's kind of strangely very appropriate. Uh, but I also thought it was, it was interesting how it was kind of slipped into the beginning. Dad is in charge of the house, and... I'm also in charge. <laughs> right. Uh, give yourself a promotion there. That's great. We're going to be talking about authority this morning, and we recognize there are different kinds of authority. Uh, there's positional authority, authority that comes from being in a certain position. You can have relational authority. There could be people that think they have authority when they really don't, sometimes people that don't realize the authority that they have. But claiming authority is, is one thing, but proving it, is another. And, and proving real authority doesn't come from a piece of paper or pointing to a sign, but ultimately having real authority comes from the response of, ones, the, of those that are under that authority. So in this passage, we're going to see Jesus, that he is going to show us glimpses of his authority in this passage. And we're going to notice that he does this just by saying words. That he is the king, and the king has a type of authority in which people respond by saying, your word is is my command. So let's look at this. Luke chapter 4, starting with verse 31. For our first point, we will just read uh, verse 31 and 32. We'll work through this in sections. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Here's the first mark of authority that we see in this passage. And that is Jesus showed authority in his, in his teaching. So verse 31, we see that he went down to Capernaum, a city of, a city of Galilee, so last time, the last section, Jesus was at Nazareth. And we saw that he taught in the synagogues there, and they rejected him. In fact, they got so mad at him that they formed a mob and tried to throw him off a cliff. So he left there, and it says he went down to Capernaum. Now when it says that, that's, that's very literal that he went down to Capernaum. And it's an indication that Luke understood the, the geography here. 
because uh, Nazareth, which is where Jesus grew up, his hometown, was up more in the, the hill country in the mountains. And that was uh, at about 1,200 feet above sea level, where he went down to Capernaum, which is on the uh, northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And that's at about 680 feet below sea level. So he definitely, obviously, he went down to Capernaum. And we're going to see the people of Capernaum, they have a much different response to Jesus than the, the very negative response that he had in his hometown. Capernaum was a fairly major Jewish center in northern Galilee. It had a more diverse population than Nazareth and a, a pretty thriving economy. They had a lot of uh, fishing, was a big industry there, uh, agriculture from the area, so there was a lot of trade uh, that was going on. And basically, Jesus makes this his, his kind of central hub for ministry, uh, especially in his ministry in, in Galilee, which is the north uh, part of what had been Israel. And as we said, there's a much different response. We saw in verse 32, it says they were amazed at his teaching. And then it says why. It says because they recognized that his word possessed authority. That there was something in the way that Jesus taught that was very different from all the other teaching they had experienced. I mean, they would go to, to synagogue, which was the Jewish um, church, you know, we have church, they had the synagogue, and they would go there on the Sabbath, which, uh, so this would have been uh, Saturday morning when this would be taking place. And they would hear from various scribes and, and different teachers. Uh, but the way they spoke was different. Uh, William Hendrickson uh, describes some of the difference between Jesus' teaching and the teaching of the scribes, and I think this is worth reading. He says, He, Jesus, spoke the truth. But corrupt and evasive reasoning marked the sermons of many of the scribes. He presented matters of great significance, matters of life, death, and eternity. They often wasted time on, on trivialities. There was a system in his preaching, but as the Talmud proves, they often rambled on and on. He excited curiosity by making Generous use of illustrations. Uh, many of those are recorded in Luke's Gospel. And their speeches were often dry as dust. He spoke as the lover of men, as one concerned with the everlasting welfare of his listeners, and pointed to the Father and his love. And their lack of love is clear. And finally, and most importantly, for it is specifically stated here, he spoke with authority, for his message came straight from the very heart and the mind of the Father. Hence also from his very own inner being and from Scripture. And they were constantly borrowing from fallible sources. One scribe quoting another scribe. Trying not to say anything that was original. And they were trying to draw from water from broken cisterns where he drew from himself being the fountain of living waters. So sometimes we think about this when we talk about Jesus teaching with, with authority. But... I think we need to stop and think, too. Was this, did this just mean that he had a heightened sense of his authority? And so he thought, taught in a very you know, commanding way, knowing that he wasn't just relying on, on other sources? I, I think that is true, but I think there's something even beyond that. Because the Word of God goes out with self-attesting authority. And that's true when we read the Scripture, 
that anything uh, that the, the power of the message is when Pastor Nick and I preach ultimately does not come from us. It's from the Word of God. And that's why we believe it's so important for you to be hearing this, for it to be going forth, because there's something just that's contained in the Word of God itself. There are fantastic arguments for, what you, for why you can trust the Bible. Historical reasons, there's apologetic reasons, but ultimately, the ultimate reason is contained in the Word of God going out because it's from the Spirit, and the Spirit brings it to you with power. So you might not know all the different background and historical reasons, but you may realize that the Word of God just speaks to you and says, this is true. This is not just uh, some message from a book. That God tells you that this is the real deal. And if, so if that's true of Scripture, and we believe it is, that is also true of when Jesus Christ spoke. He is the Son of God. That he is even, even called the living Word of God. The Word of God in person. So yeah, the people recognize here that the words that he spoke carried authority from God. And when Jesus speaks to us, and when the Word of God speaks to us, we need to recognize that authority, and we need to come underneath that authority. So the first thing we see is that his words, his teaching, carried a special authority. We also, in the next section that we'll read, we'll see that Jesus showed his authority over demons, over uh, Satan's forces, the demonic realm. So let's read here verses 33 through 37 now. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And when we look at this account, we need to read this, and we need to be amazed. I mean, sometimes, especially if if you've been to church a bit, if you've heard these stories, maybe since you were young, it can fool us into thinking, well, this is just, we know Jesus goes around doing miracles, and this is not a big deal. The people that saw this, is, it says they were amazed at this. And we should realize how unusual and how powerful and amazing this was. And try to <clears throat> read Scripture with, with fresh eyes. Try to use your, your God-given imagination Put yourself there and imagine what this would be like. Seeing someone come in and someone do this. And this is the first of a lot of miracles we're going to see in Luke's Gospel. Jesus had already done some other ones, but this is the first one that's described in detail in Luke's Gospel with, with more coming. We're also going to notice, do you notice this? Basically everything in today's passage takes place in one day's time. It's kind of a day in the life of Jesus. Because he starts out in the morning, he's preaching in the synagogue. And there it says that in the synagogue, 
there was a man who had an unclean spirit, a demon. There was a man that was possessed by a demon right there in the place of worship. I think there's something we can learn from that too. If you think that Satan and his forces will respect the limits of a place of worship, I mean, think again. I mean, if you think that there's something you know, magical, we have a magical row of stones or something at the, the doors, that oh, the demons, they can't mess with anything in here. It, that's not how it works. I mean, we have people praying for uh, demonic forces and the unseen spirits to not be affecting people. But we do that because, because they can. And so, to think that it's off limits, don't uh, fool yourself in that way. In fact, unfortunately, I think Satan and his forces do some of their best work in churches, oftentimes. We have to say that. But we notice here, Scripture also presents just the reality of these forces. Now, there are some people that get embarrassed by this. I think, well, we've grown beyond that. We don't believe in Satan and demons and these type of things. We can explain all these things with, uh, with different causes. But if we believe Scripture, we have to recognize this is what it's teaching. And I think when you look around at the amount of evil in the world, too, I think that's good evidence that there's, there are forces that are really at work. And Satan and his forces, you know, they'll do whatever works. I think in different situations, different time periods, different settings, they'll attack, they'll use uh, different methods. I think most often, you know, in today's world, at least in, you know, uh, in America, you know, in our our modern culture, Satan tends to work more undercover. You know, he'd rather not really show that, that he and his forces exist, because that might get us thinking that there's something, there's a spiritual world, and that God exists. So he'd rather just kind of work kind of undercover. But I think we need to recognize how much he does work. And even if he isn't, uh, there are times Satan possesses people, but I think more often than not in in churches, at least he wants our minds to be possessed with something else than the Word of God. That he might just give us the little nudges to get us distracted, thinking about the concerns you have, you know, what do you have at home waiting for you, those repairs? You know, Monday's coming up, and then you got things, uh, you got to go back to work, and there's so many problems. You know, think about that. Be distracted from the Word of God, because the Word of God has power. And if you're paying attention to that, that might, that might change your heart. That might change your mind if you hear this with its self contained authority. So he'll get you to think about, you know, something else. And whatever distraction, you're looking around, oh, look at that person over there. Or, you know, even sometimes, you know, uh, thinking about our, our, our kids, whatever it might be. So just be aware of that. We want to be hearing God's word and paying attention to that the best that we can. In verse 34 and 35, we have, I see this as a showdown. I mean, look at this, what is being said. You know, this demon says, you know, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I think what he was, the demon was saying there was kind of an idiom that he was, when he said, what have you to do with us? Uh, scholars say it's an idiom meaning, you know, we have nothing to do with each other. Or why bother me? Why bug me? Leave me alone. I mean, this demon was not wanting to have anything to do with Jesus Christ. Definitely not. And then he says, have you come to destroy us? 
Now, there's some times where people are possessed by multiple demons, but this, otherwise it could be the case that he's talking about himself and the man that he was possessing. That he was saying to Jesus, you're going to try and get me out of this man that I have possessed? Well, you're, going to, you're not just going to destroy me, you're going to destroy this man in the process. I think of it almost being like uh, you're watching a, a, a TV show or a movie and you know, the bad guy takes a hostage you know, and he's hiding behind him and he's, he's got the gun and uh, you know, the hero's out there and he's got his gun pointed but you know, he doesn't want to shoot you know, at the bad guy because he might hit the hostage. I think that's kind of the situation that uh, this demon is holding this guy hostage saying, Jesus, you know, if you try this, you're going to end up destroying not just me, you're going to destroy this guy as well. But then the way I see this is that Jesus, he rebukes this demon, tells him to come out. And notice it says that the man was unharmed. He's thrown down, but he's unharmed. It's kind of like in the, in the movies where the, you know, the, the hero is such a good shot, he takes a shot anyways. The bad guy goes down, and the hostage, the hostage is free. He's not hurt. And maybe it's the fact that uh, Luke recording this, who is a physician, uh, has extra concern just pointing out you know, that the man, Jesus, was able to do this without, without harming this man. I think it also gives us a glimpse into the compassion of Jesus, him being able to do this. And also notice that how Jesus did this again. We see this before, that it's because of his word. And here he rebukes the demon, and just says to him, be silent and come out of him, and the demon has to come out. And notice the people's response. First thing recorded is that they say, what is this word? So Jesus, like some other exorcists of the time, and even you know, some, you know, maybe today, he wasn't using trinkets and formulas and different things. Uh, it was just the power of his word that was able to do this. And verse 36, they were amazed at Jesus' authority and power, even over these rebel demons, as unwilling and as powerful as they are. And finally in this section, we see Jesus' authority. Jesus showed his authority over disease. Verse 38 through 44, let's read this. And he arose and left the synagogue. This is all happening at the same time. <clears throat> and entered Simon's house. And this is Simon Peter. This is uh, uh, Peter the Apostle. And uh, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever. And it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting... All those, who had, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a, a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. 
Now, at the end, when it says Judea, sometimes that's used of, of all of Israel, and that's specifically just the, the lower kingdom. So here we see Jesus showing authority over disease and over, over sickness. He had uh, Peter's, Simon Peter's mom with this, with this high fever. I'll tell you, there really is a lot of uh, sickness going around you know, this winter. And we've talked about that. I know a lot of you have been sick and different things that have been carrying on. I'll tell you, this past week, on, on Thursday, uh, my youngest son, Joel, um, was at, stayed home from, from, uh, from a school. And we found out in his kindergarten class, they normally have 25 students. They only had nine in class that day. Everyone else was pretty much homesick. Last week, uh, I kind of had a cold that I picked up. And for about two weeks, I couldn't hear out of my right ear. It finally like, kind of unpopped yesterday, so I'm glad that I can hear in stereo now again. Uh, but a week ago, Hope got sick too, and she lost her voice. And she could barely speak. So we ended up, uh, one time, going out, we're trying to go out to eat. And it was just funny, because she couldn't speak, and I couldn't hear anything. So <laughs> I think it would be the, the most quiet date there is. But we still talked. There was just a lot of, what, what, what? So all this the sickness and different things going around. Here we see um, Simon Peter, his mother-in-law, which, by the way, if you have a mother-in-law, do you know what that means? It means you're married. I just, I just thought I'd point that out. Uh, it also points out in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, that Peter was married. I just point this out because this is not good evidence for those who would claim that, let's say, Peter was the first pope and that popes and priests should not be married. Just something to consider. But notice here, she had this high fever, and notice again how he cured this. Uh, he didn't have to use uh, charms or different things. He cured it by, by rebuking. He rebuked the fever, and, and it left her. Again, we see the authority in Jesus' words, that that's all he had to do. I mean, I mean, ladies, he didn't even have to use essential oils. Okay, I know it's a miracle. This is a miracle, okay? So, I mean, we cure people. We have to use, we use medicine. We use different things. And we have to do that. Uh, but Jesus, he could just speak and have this happen. And wouldn't that be nice, you know, in the morning with, the, you know, sick kids and different things, if, if we could do that? Like, oh, oh, you're, you're, you're sick again. Just uh, be gone and go to school. Okay, oh, you have a tummy ache. Okay, uh, you know, rebuke the tummy ache. Oh, you, you have a tummy ache because you ate a whole bag of gummy worms. Okay, well, we rebuke you gummy worms. Come out! Actually, you don't want to say that to the... Um. So. so Jesus was able to, to heal this way. And so he heals uh, Simon's mother. And then, remember, we, again, we said this is all on the same day. She arises and she begins to serve them. Okay, so she begins to, okay, I'm going to go to work. Let me uh, get to work. And, um, I mean, so she was really, this wasn't just a, feeling a little bit better. She was, she was ready to go and ready to be back into, uh, into service. And we can think about that, too, as God does stuff for us. Shouldn't our response be to, to serve him as well out of thankfulness? And it says in verse 40, when the sun was setting, those who had any 
who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, to Jesus, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. So the sun is setting now. And so the reason maybe this is happening at sundown is because this would be, okay, this would mean the Sabbath was over. And we're going to see the Gospels go out of the way to show that uh, Jesus did a lot of healing on the Sabbath. And a lot of the people didn't think the scribes and the Pharisees, that went against their traditions. Oh, you shouldn't be doing that. That's work. And Jesus said, no, well, I, I can heal on the Sabbath. That's different. And we'll talk about that more. But maybe some of the people thought, well, we, we have to wait till the Sabbath. We can't be bringing people to Jesus. So that's probably why this happens after the Sabbath is concluded, because sundown is when that's over. So it's saying they realize this and, hey, you know, free you know, hospital service here. And they're bringing everyone they can to him. And it looks like Jesus pulls an all-nighter here. Uh, just healing people. And notice how many it says. It goes out of its way here to say that he healed all of them. Other times in the Gospels, there are times when Jesus only heals some, but here he, he held, healed them all. And I want to say too, Jesus didn't do this. He didn't do this to teach us to, to expect a miracle. Okay, he did this to authenticate his authority, his identity as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Son of God. I think we can also notice, too, he did this in a very personal way. He said he, he laid hands on them. There was, there was personal contact. There was touch. And maybe there's some things that we can get out of that as well, as far as having compassion for people the way that Jesus did. And notice that Jesus, he doesn't do ministry at a distance. He's willing to do ministry close and up and impersonal. It's not just that he loves mankind, he, he loves individual people. And you know, as we grow in Christ-likeness, we need to realize that people sometimes need that personal contact. And it, it might involve a physical touch, but it might just involve that, that personal connection with them. That we need to not just be isolated from each other, but being willing to be in contact with other people as we're trying to be Christ-like. So he heals people. Verse 41, there were many demon-possessed people, more that come, and he drives them out of people. Uh, And some were saying, you are the Son of God, but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Let me just say, these demons actually had good theology. They had good theology, but they were a poor witness. I mean, it's true, Jesus was the Son of God. And in verse 31, they were correct to say that he is the Holy One of God. Uh, But Jesus didn't really, he didn't want his credentials to be from demons. So he told them they they were not allowed to speak. He kept that from silence them so that they wouldn't be saying this. But just remember, you can have good theology, but be a poor witness. And good theology from a corrupt witness isn't what Jesus wants. It can do more harm than good, whether it's from demons or, sad to say it, sometimes from many of us. It's not just enough just to have all our theological T's crossed and our theological I's dotted. That's as good as that is. And I, I love sound theology, and that is, it's of extreme importance. But if you have that, but not a Christ-like spirit, that Satan can use us to do more harm than good. So we have to not just 
talk the talk, we need to walk the walk. We need to not just be Christ-like with the, the logic and the words that come out of our mouth, but in the way that we say it and the way that we treat other people as well. We need to remember this. And then verse 42 and 44, at the end, Jesus, it was, uh, it's the beginning of the, the next day he departs. So he had pulled an all-nighter, I think, here, and he goes to a desolate place. He needs some time. And the people, they sought him and came to him. And it says they wanted to keep him from leaving. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And then he went and he, he preached. The people of Capernaum, hey, they wanted to keep Jesus for themselves. They had experienced a good thing, and it, it's good to want Jesus. It's good to want to continue with him. But at this time, I mean, he could only be in one place at a time. They, the people didn't want Jesus to leave, but, but he needed to go and preach to other towns as well. It's almost as if he was saying uh, to them, I, I'm glad that you're thankful. I'm glad that you want me here, but I'm not here to be the permanent health spa to just this one group of people. There are other people that need me as well. And I think, too, we need to ask ourselves, what is, what is our attitude I mean, here at First Baptist, we love Jesus Christ. And for any part of our heart that doesn't, we're working on that. That's the main thing we want for each other, is to love and know Jesus Christ more and more. But it's not just so that we can keep him here without sharing Jesus Christ. That just as he was sent to preach uh, to all the nations, we're sent to take the message of Jesus Christ outside of these walls and outside to this community and to this world that needs Jesus Christ as well. We can't just keep Jesus Christ for ourselves, saying, Jesus is a lot for me. He's done a lot. And I just want to keep that for myself. We want to take it to others. And notice at the end, too, he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. We think of the kingdom. We, think we need to remember that the message of the kingdom it has to do with the authority of the king. We think back on this. We had three points. And there were three areas that Jesus showed us that he has authority over. And if you have authority over something, it means you're, well, you're, you have authority to overcome some different things. So let's think about this for a second. At first, Jesus has authority in his teaching. We saw that. That means he has authority over, over falsehood, over lies, over ignorance, misconceptions. We have so many things in our heads that are, that are untrue. Things that we pick up from others that uh, it's just not the way it really is. And Jesus, he is the, the great prophet. He is the great teacher. He's the one that has the right to tell us what to think, to tell us what is really true. We also saw that he casts out demons. You know, Satan and demons, they're the ultimate rebels. And they led Adam and Eve, and, and therefore all of us, into rebellion and sin. And so Jesus is showing he has authority over rebellion. He has authority to, to put that down. He has authority over, as, as the king, to do that. And he healed sickness. He healed disease. And I think this shows us that, that he has authority over the effects of the curse. Because we live in a cursed world. 
And when God made Adam and Eve, He made them to live eternally if they would have not sinned and fallen away. But Scripture is clear that it's because of Adam's sin. That's why, why death came to us. And that is, that's why we die. And not only that, but sickness, disease, all these things are, are the things that eventually lead to us dying and departing from this world. And so Jesus, when He came to, to heal, He was showing that He has the ability to overcome the curse. Now, that is why, of course, these people that Jesus healed, that, that's why they're still alive and with us today, right? Well, no. Because all they received, they received a, a temporary reprieve from their sickness, maybe a foretaste of what Jesus could do, but to really defeat the curse. Jesus would eventually be hung on the cross. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's ultimately what he came to do. To defeat not just temporary sickness. and and We're all going to suffer from that. We're all going to physically die unless Jesus comes back before that happens. But for those of us that have a relationship with Christ, those of us that have trusted Jesus Christ, put our faith in Him alone for our personal salvation. And I hope and I pray that you have. And I pray that you would do that before you walk out of here. That we receive something even better than physical healing that may come to some. Spiritual healing. Forgiveness of sin. Restoration with God, which is far more important. Today, Jesus, He does not heal all, but He offers spiritual and permanent healing to anyone who will come to him. That includes forgiveness of sin, a repaired relationship with the God who you were made for, and yes, even eventually the resurrection of your physical body to live with Jesus eternally. So have you repented? Have you, in faith, submitted to Jesus Christ as the one with all authority, even the authority to save you because of what he did with his perfect life and his death and resurrection. Everything went bad in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, you see Satan, the prince of the demons at work. You see he had a lie. And you see the curse that resulted from that. But Jesus is the king who came with authority to overcome all three of those. That's what this king came to do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before You and we bow in the presence of Your authority. We thank You that You have the authority to teach us what is true. Please help us have hearts that submit to that. Even when it's something that goes against what we think or that we do not like, the authority is not with us, it is with You. We thank You that You cast out demons and You show that You have authority over rebellion. Help us to repent and to cease our rebellion against You that you are the king, you are the one that has authority over our lives. And Lord God, let us trust you. Our, our great high priest is the one that, was, that presented the sacrifice and that was the sacrifice to save us from the curse. The curse of not just sin and death in this life, but of eternity in hell. And we thank you that you, Jesus the King, that you laid down your life to pay for our redemption. We thank you that you are a risen King and a risen Lord. And we 
worship, and we submit to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen.